Welcome to the C3 Church Coffs Harbour podcast. We're glad you're here. We pray that you'll be blessed and encouraged by this week's message. I've always wanted to ask. That's the series we're doing at the moment. If you're a guest here today, I've always wanted to ask. That's what we're looking at, where uh, questions have been thrown at me usually by way of uh, uh, paper wrapped around a brick through my window. Um, <laughs> that was one, that was one. And Pete Crawford, you need to fix that, by the way. Um, no, no, but we're just submitting a bunch of questions of things that I've always wanted to ask. And, and let me just state from the outset that this is not one of those, I want to challenge the pastor on theology sort of deals. Um, because if I get those questions, guess what? I'm not answering those questions. This is, this is a series where we, we genuinely want to get to um, scratch the itches that exist within the life of the church. Some things that are, that are genuine curiosities that exist amongst us that if, if I can use the platform I have to help us get clarity on some issues, it could be really helpful. Because sometimes when we go through church life and preaching, uh, we can't tackle every single issue every single week. Um, and so this is an opportunity for us to tackle a bunch of wide variety of issues um, in, in a short period of time. So I, I hope it's been helpful for you. We did a video last week because I wasn't here. Uh, I had great feedback about that for when it did work and you got to see it. Apparently it was good. But um, I do apologize for the frozen weird face I think I had on the screen for a bunch of time. Um, it's not my best angle, let's be honest. But uh, we've looked at a, a bunch of different questions that I'll just give us a little recap on what questions we have addressed. I'm not going to answer them in brief because if you want to listen back, you can just jump onto Spotify or go to iTunes and download the podcast. But we looked at things like, what are your thoughts on the millennial reign and when Jesus comes back? Um, what does the Bible say about abortion and termination? What is uh, the eldership structure of this church? What is the Bible's view on tattoos? That was a fun one. Um, why did Jesus tell people not to uh, tell anyone what he was doing? Uh, is there a difference between being religious and being a Christian? Hmm, that was a good one. Uh, how do you know the difference between your voice and all the other voices going on in your head? Um, if you had one question to ask God, what would that be? How has technology affected spirituality? That's probably one of my favorite questions to ask, to answer actually last week, which is cool. And how has the disintegration of traditional family values affected society? So these are really solid questions. These are really well thought out questions. And um, to be honest, I'm not sure what I was expecting when I decided to do this series, but I am pleasantly surprised by the, the thoughtfulness of the questions that have been asked. And it's been such an honor to, uh, to research and, and formulate, um, hopefully, articulate and helpful biblical responses to these questions. So... That being said, uh, I've got a bunch more questions that we're going to dive into today, which is fantastic. Question one. When someone is a pastor, should their ministry and church be their top priority even over their family? Good question. Um, I would say no. In fact, I would go a little bit further to say absolutely not. Um, the funny thing is with all this though 
is that the, the nature of the church would indicate that it would want you to prioritise itself over your family, but God himself doesn't say that you should prioritise church over family. And what I mean by that is the, 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 the demands, the expectations of, of being a pastor or being a leader are insatiable. There is always somebody to meet. There is always a problem to solve. There is always uh, something or someone vying for your attention or your time. And so boundaries must be put in place because if they're not, it will literally become a 24-7 job. That is just an inexhaustible treadmill of, of works to be done. That's just what the, the nature of the work of the church would, would, would require. But, but God himself, through scripture, reveals that, hey, no, 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 I don't want you to exhaust your family at the exp- exhaust yourself and your family at the expense of building the church. You see, it's very funny because when I read the Bible, um, Timothy in particular states that the qualifications of a leader or a church leader is that they would have their family in order. So in a sense, that it's, it's, it's how you look after your family actually determines whether you're qualified enough to lead God's church. So therefore, you cannot prioritize church over family because family is a qualifying factor that even allows you to serve in leadership capacity in the church. And so we've, we've said from day one that, that we will not sacrifice our children or our marriage on the, ministry, on the altar of ministry and that our family um, is our first flock. That's, you know, um, having said that, that's not an excuse to be lazy or to, uh, to, to not go the extra mile. We believe in working hard. We believe in going the extra mile. We believe in excellence. Um, but it's, it's just about... It's not even about balance, because balance is this myth that doesn't exist. If you're in the pursuit of trying to find balance between work and family life, you're going to be constantly frustrated because balance doesn't exist. I had a revelation a bunch of years ago that um, before I was pastoring and just working um, regular jobs, that I, I would spend more time with my work colleagues than my wife. Because I'm spending 40 hours face-to-face with these people every, sometimes more, 50 hours with the same people every single week. And I was not spending 50 hours face-to-face with my wife or my kids. So balance doesn't exist. We cannot have a thing called balance. What we need to have is a, a healthy awareness of the thermostat of the relationships and responsibilities we have in our life. To go, you know what, I've spent a lot of time here and this is starting to go down. So I need to spend more time here to get that back up and to, to, to invest into that. So what that means for us Practically, if we're talking in the context of leadership and church life, if we have a big weekend, for example, if we have a guest speaker come through and, uh, and we've got a bunch of leaders' meetings and we take them for dinner and, and, uh, and, and one-on-one meetings and then church meetings and the weekend is just filled with hosting uh, a guest in our church and our kids often will get babysat while we do that so we can be freed up to, to have this, we have no issue whatsoever on Monday morning pulling the kids out of school having the day off work and spending the day together as a family just doing fun stuff if we need to. That doesn't happen often, but if we're checking the dials of our life and the dashboard of what's going on in our world and we realise that, hold on, our kids or our marriage hasn't got the attention it's deserved because of all the other things that have been going on lately, we need to be aware of that and be prepared to call time out, have a day off, whatever it's required, and, and do that. So no, 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 family first, then ministry. Before that, God, I would even say. Because in order to have a healthy family, you need to have a healthy relationship with your Heavenly Father. And it's his downpour into you that allows you to pour out into family that then qualifies you to pour out into the church. So it's always God first, family, then church. Cool?
Make sense? Sweet. Simple question, but hopefully that clarifies that. Um, secondly, what do you think the approach would be of Jesus if he were alive today? Ooh. First of all, he is alive today. Just put that out there. Um, but I'm assuming, I'm assuming that the question is, is saying if Jesus was uh, incarnate today, if he was on the earth today as a human like he was 2000, how would he interact in today's society? I'm assuming that's the premise of the question. I, I would say his approach would be pretty much the same. I, I'd say he would preach the good news to the poor. And, and what I mean by that is he would, he would not look for those who don't have any money and preach the good news to him. My mother knows me more than anybody else. She can tell that I'm thirsty. Thank you, Mum. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. Um, where was I? Jesus. Preach the good news to the poor. He, he would not, that, what I mean by poor is he's not looking for those without money. He's looking for those who are spiritually bankrupt. That there are riches in heaven that only come from a relationship with our Heavenly Father that we have access to. And without that, we are bankrupt. So it's by faith in Christ that we have the pin number that gives us access to heavenly riches. And without that, we are poor. And so Jesus came to the earth to preach the good news, which is, hey, through a relationship with me, you get access to the Father and all that the Father has for his children. And so he would preach that same message today. I don't think you do anything different. Um, I, I think he would um, interact with people in such a way in order to reach them. Um, I think he would defend the defenseless. I think he would rebuke the oppressor. I think he would love the unlovable. I think he would preach truth unreservedly. I think he would care for the widows, care for the orphans. I think he would identify, train, and equip leaders to carry the legacy of his message on from generation to generation after him. Um, I, I think he would believe the best in people. He would see their poten potential over their imperfections. I think he would teach us to build the kingdom of God more than, so than building the kingdom of ourselves. I think he would impart hope, life and love everywhere he went. And I think he'd have a field day at the Vatican and with some televangelists. Just saying. Just saying. Uh, so that's what I think Jesus would do today. I didn't think he'd do things too differently because the Word of God does say that he is the same yesterday, today and forever. Um, and, and his message is eternal. It's eternal past. It's eternal forward. And it's good for every human of every generation. Number three. What does love actually mean in a practical sense? What does love actually mean in a practical sense? Well, I think two ways for me to answer this. I would say love practically means taking the thoughts of affection and kindness you have in your mind and allowing them to come out of your mouth and out of your hands. I've met a bunch of people who they think kind thoughts, they think somebody's awesome, they think that somebody's really talented, but for some reason it just can't come out of their mouth. Or for some reason it doesn't manifest in how they treat that person or how they interact with that person. So I think love, love is a, a verb more than it is a noun. Love is something we do. It's taking those thoughts of affection, those thoughts of kindness, and putting them into words because words speak life, words build life, and it's also putting it into our hands of doing something for people that show the thoughts of affection and kindness we have towards them. That's my first thought around what is love in a practical sense. The other thing I would say uh, about what does love look like in a practical sense is, is 1, 1 Corinthians 10, sorry, 1 Corinthians 13 is, is what is known as the love chapter, the love chapter of, of the Bible. And uh, it's very popular at weddings. And, and one, one 
particular method of, of studying this scripture is, is pretty popular, but I think it's actually pretty helpful. And in verse 4 and 6, verse 4 to 6, I should say, is, is what they say is you should substitute out the, the references to love with your name. And when you read those, those two or three verses, when your name is substituted with whenever love is referred to, it gives you a standard by which you can measure yourself in regards to how loving you are towards other people. So let me do that for you. And I'll, I'll, I'll do it to myself so it's less awkward for somebody else if I choose them out. So um, we'll start in verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but don't have love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that I can move mountains but don't have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give them over my body to hardship that I may boast but don't have love, I gain nothing. I love that. What this is saying is you can be a super Christian that is fully gifted and fully generous and fully awesome in your own eyes. But if you don't actually love, if love isn't the filter by which you do all those things, then all those things you do are nothing. They are not fruitful deeds of the Spirit. They are just fruitless deeds of the flesh to make you look good because love is the filter by which God operates because love is a fruit of the Spirit. Here's where we get the interesting part. In verse 4. I'm going to substitute out every reference to love with my name and I'm going to create a standard by which I can measure how loving I am. Here we go. Justin is patient. Justin is kind. Justin does not envy. Justin does not boast. Justin is not proud. Justin does not dishonor others. Justin is not self-seeking. Justin is not easily angered. Justin keeps no record of wrongs. Justin does not delight in evil, but Justin rejoices with the truth. Justin always protects. Justin always trusts. Justin always hopes. Justin always perseveres. Now, that's not entirely true. In fact, I'm not sure if any of that's actually true. But the good thing is, when I read that, whatever obviously makes my stomach turn is an area I need to work on. So now I can, I can measure what love looks like and I know how I can be more loving towards somebody else. So if, if I go, Justin is not easily angered, and go, oh, that's not true. I'm highly volatile. <laughs> well, hello, there's an area where love is not flowing through me and I need to work on that. And so what we also need to do, we can do the same thing, but in order to understand who God is, we do the exact same little principle, but we change the, the, love, the love thing to, to God. So if you want to know who God is, and this is the perfect rap sheet of God, God is patient, God is kind, God does not envy, and so we can see who God is. And that's the God we serve, that's the God we love, that's the God we trust. So... There's my two thoughts about how to, how to love practically is like take what's in your head, put it in your mouth, put it in your hands and also see what the Bible, how the Bible describes love and measure yourself up against that. Question four. If someone is suffering, why do Christians believe that they don't have the right to end their own life? So this is the, the euthanasia discussion. Um, Again, this is one of those tricky social issues um, that are pretty, um, pretty hot topic at the moment. And um, a- a- as a Christian, we would believe that 
um, even though suffering is awful and we don't want to see anybody suffering and we, I understand that there are so many complex components to euthanasia and, and the, the moral or ethical debate around that. Um, if, if we had to or if I had to land on, on a yes or no or a for or against um, position on this, I, I would say against. And here is why. Now, I understand the for argument. I understand why it could be a useful tool. But if I had to choose, I would choose that, you know, I, I stand with no based on what the Word of God teaches me. Psalm 100 verse 3 says, Know that the Lord himself is God. It's he who has made us. We are not ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So what this is saying is that, that we are God's kids. God's created us. God's given us life. God has put us on this planet for a purpose. So essentially... God's given us life. We don't have the right to take that life away. Um, and I guess it, 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 a, lot of, a lot of these scriptures are, are the same ones we used in, in talking about the, the abortion termination discussion two weeks ago. Um, and again, like I said, that time, it's tricky. And, and I don't want to get up here and just be so black and white and blunt about it. I, I want to acknowledge the fact that I get how tricky and complicated these issues are. But I have to govern my life not by what media or, or the social temperature of the world tells me, but I have to temper my life by what the Word of God teaches me because this is my true north. Nothing else is my true north. Um, and so that's just where I stand. Exodus 20 says that you shall not murder. Now you might think, well, that's not murder. It's, it's voluntary, but murder is the taking away of life. And so we would say that that's not God's best. And Deuteronomy 30, I call heaven and earth against you this day. I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life. Um, and here's, here's, a, here's a thought, and this might be trivial, this might be, you know, whatever, but, but I kind of believe too, and this might be a little bit hyper-faith hyper Christian guy of me, but I kind of think it's, it's never too late for a miracle. Like Lazarus was dead for three days. Jesus was dead for three days. The, the, the leper had leprosy for 40 years. The lady with issue of blood, 12 years. Um, the blind since birth. So, so for, for us to decide that it's okay to take a life, short circuits perhaps the potential of a miracle taking place that was in a timing different to ours because it's never too late for a miracle. We don't know what God is doing. We don't know what God is up to. We don't know what God can do or God will do. We just know what he's able to do in a situation. So um, is that okay? Sweet. So on the, on the back end of that question leads us into why does God allow suffering? Excellent question. Why does God allow suffering? Because suffering and evil exist. In this room, we could all probably tell, tell stories of suffering and injustice. And if we believe that God is God, then why would he allow this thing? And, and one of the big arguments out there is if God is all-powerful, then he cannot be all-loving because of the evil and injustice in the world. And if God is all-loving, he cannot be all-powerful because he's not removing this evil and injustice in the world. Well, that, just because we don't understand something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Just because, because we can't come up with a, a reasonable answer for why God might allow suffering doesn't mean that answer doesn't exist. 
I want to read a little... um, Yeah, Tim Keller says this. He says, Christianity may not provide the reason for human suffering, but it provides the resource for those facing suffering. Knowing that Jesus himself suffered in the same way we suffer means that we can face suffering with hope and courage rather than bitterness and despair. Jesus firsthand knew despair, rejection, loneliness, poverty, bereavement, torture, and imprisonment. So we might not know the reason why God allows suffering, but we do know that one reason is One reason can't be is that he doesn't care. We can't say that one of the reasons that God allows suffering is because he doesn't care because he's demonstrated his care for us, his love for us, by sending his son Jesus to suffer. Jesus didn't live the VIP life here on this earth. Jesus wasn't treated like royalty. Sometimes he was, but he suffered like we suffer. He, He hurt like we hurt. He was hungry like we get hungry. He understands first-hand suffering. So why would God send himself to go through those things if he did not care for us and make a way for us to then have hope in our suffering by trusting that he knows the plan and the purpose? We might not be able to articulate why things go on, but we understand that we have a reason and a resource as we go through that suffering. William Lane Craig, a great apologist, says this, Even though the problem of evil and suffering is the greatest objection to the existence of God, at the end of the day, God is the only solution to the problem of evil and suffering. If God does not exist, then we are lost without hope in a life filled with gratuitous and unredeemed suffering. God is the final answer to the problem of evil and suffering, for he redeems us from evil and takes us to the everlasting joy of an immeasurably good relationship with him. So why does God allow suffering? I don't know. But, but we can believe that God will take that and redeem it and make it good. How, when, why, we don't know. But it does not rationalize away the existence of God, but rather channels us into hope in the midst of our suffering. Question six. Can somebody lose their salvation? Can somebody lose their salvation? Short answer? No. To to say that someone can lose their salvation is to suppose that salvation and the provision for salvation itself is insufficient, insecure, and incomplete. I lost my salvation. Therefore, the very foundation of salvation must be incomplete if someone's able to lose it. It must be insufficient. It must be insecure. That being said, I don't necessarily believe one can lose their salvation, but I believe one can abandon their salvation. And they're two separate things. Salvation is not like your car keys. You're like, where was that salvation? I swear I had that salvation on me somewhere and now it's just disappeared. That's not how it works. We, we can abandon our salvation. And we see this in, in Romans 1. It says that they, they, that they gave up worshipping created God and started to worship created things. They cared more about pleasure for themselves than they did about bringing pleasure to God himself. And it didn't end well for them. 
when they turned their affection away from God and put it onto just stuff and self, it didn't end well. So they, they, they abandoned their faith. Or Romans 10 is a very scary passage of scripture. It basically talks about if we live a lifestyle of sin, rebellion against God, choosing to um, you know, disregard his standard of holiness according to his word, then it says that we trample underfoot the blood of Christ and we treat it like it's a common thing. That's heavy. That's saying that the God of the heavens and earth who sent his only begotten son into the world to suffer on our behalf and to be crucified to make a way for all of us to have a relationship with him. Let that holiness become human and suffered so they could make incomplete or insufficient humans complete in him. For us to choose a lifestyle of sin tramples underfoot that sacrifice and treats it like it's a common thing. Verse 26 is scary because it says there no longer remains a sacrifice for that person's sin. Now we're not talking about little, little sins like, oh, someone cut me off in traffic and I flipped them the bird and said something I shouldn't have said and things like that. We, they're, they're just sins that happen. They're, they're reactionary sins. They're different things. Opp- opportunity arises and we make a dumb decision. What, what we're talking about is, is a lifestyle that we choose to commit to knowing full well that this is not God's best for our life. This is the kind of sin that, that leads us to neglecting our faith or abandoning our faith and it doesn't and well. And, and I've seen this, unfortunately, time and time again, where people abandon their faith and it begins with neglect. I just stop reading my word. I don't come to church very often. I don't pray at all. I'm absorbed by the, the world around me and I'm entertained more than I'm informed by the word of God and um, I, I just I want to feed my flesh rather than feed my spirit. And it's these little things that, that start to creep in. And like Anna was saying, I preached a message last week, it's about moments that build momentum. And, and the moments are, are little things. It's like every time we read the word of God, it's, it's a moment. Every time we pray, we're praying in a moment. And those moments that are strung together with 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 tenacity and, and, and dedication will actually create momentum for good or for bad because we can create momentum with apathy and laziness and indifference and feeding the flesh and all of a sudden we have a momentum that wants to satisfy us and it just takes us in a whole other direction or we can have a moment of dedication, of discipline of pointing towards God and all of a sudden we get a momentum of strength and opportunity and growth and maturity in Christ Moments, there's the message in a nutshell, moments to momentum. So um, we have to be intentional about intimacy with God. Intentional about hanging out with Him, praying to Him, serving Him, being with Him. Because to neglect Him is to ultimately lead to a path of abandonment. And that's where I would see time and time again people that I know who were once shoulder to shoulder with me, building the church, who now would claim to be atheists, it didn't start with momentum. The momentum they have now in their atheism started with a moment of neglect or apathy or indifference or sin. And that's where it starts. So we don't lose our salvation as much as I say we can abandon it. And, and some people say, well, then if that's the case, then they were never saved in the first place. I don't believe that either. I believe they were saved. 
I believe that, that the power of Jesus had revived them to life, had saved them. It's just that they didn't keep fanning into flame. They just stopped. Became indifferent. Walked away. They started to worship. Created things more than created God. That's how it works. Last question. How do you think Christians should tackle the divisive social issues of today? How do we keep living as the Bible asks while being alienated almost immediately for holding those views? For example, on abortion, homosexuality, and other issues like that. <sighs> what, would you like me to read what I've written? Okay, here we go. We should position ourselves as elite over every other person who does not believe and insensitively ridicule them for their beliefs and make a point of picking out the faults at every given moment until they believe exactly what we believe. That, this is a tough question to answer. And what I thought, sometimes truth becomes clear when a lie is raised up high. And where we cannot find, well, I'm not sure the answer, well, what's, what don't we do? We don't do that. And once we understand what we shouldn't do, what we should do becomes clear. How do we navigate in a world that's so against us and so against our faith and doesn't believe what we believe and every time we disagree all of a sudden we hate them and different things like that? Well, do we position ourselves above everybody? Do we become elite? Do we ridicule them? No. And I only wrote that to, to make that a, a juxtaposition against what we should do because truth becomes clear when a lie is raised. I think... I think Romans 2.4 is, is a beautiful passage. And it talks about the kindness of God leads to repentance. God is kind towards people. God is loving towards people. Does God have a, a wrathful side, a wrathful side that will pour out judgment on those who reject him? Absolutely. But it's the kindness of God that will lead people to repentance so that they don't have to encounter the full judgment and wrath of God. It's the kindness of Jesus being willing to go to the cross for you and for me to make a way for us to have eternity with him forever that leads people to that place. So I would say, be kind. Be strong. Um, display the fruit of the Spirit. Love, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Which, from the other side of the fence, is, is what we are not receiving. We are not receiving love, kindness, peace, gentleness, self-control from those who oppose us with their strong political views. So we, we don't fight fire with fire. That makes no sense. You fight fire with water, a different substance altogether. You don't fight hate with hate. You fight it with love. That's... Really that simple. You don't fight evil with evil, you fight it with good. You don't fight arrogance and aggression with arrogance and aggression, you fight it with humility and kindness. Because you're secure in who you are as God's child and that God's word is true and what we preach, what we proclaim, what we believe, what we declare will never remain, will never come back void. The God's word is ultimate truth. So we live our, our life in such a way that people will see not just that the truth we say makes sense, but the truth we say is true because of how we live our life and our life becomes evidence of the truth we proclaim with our mouth. I was thirsty then. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Show people 
by how you treat them that the truth is actually in you. We can have opposing views and still be friends. Disagreement is not hate speech. Do not buy into this. That's what the world wants us to believe. We can disagree and still be friends. Thanks for tuning in to the C3CH podcast. We trust this week's message inspired and encouraged you. We hope to see you in one of our services soon. For more information on C3 Church Coffs Harbour, visit www.c3ch.com.